I don't know about you, but the word silk conjures the exotic romanticism of the Far East for me, full of heavenly, multicoloured layers along with traditional symbols and patterns. And if I close my eyes, there's an explosion of delicate and richly detailed dragon robes, exquisite Chinese embroideries and weavings, and stunningly elegant, richly detailed Indian saris. It's a bewitching and entrancing vision fully backed and supported by a substantial history replete with the secrets of sericulture, distant caravan trade routes linking China to the Middle East via the Silk Road, and the expansion of silk production into the kingdoms of Korea and Japan, along with the empires of India, Persia, Egypt, Greece and Rome. Now that's a pretty impressive pedigree and resume, which I'm longing to explore now. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch, sewing and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that comprises the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari expedition leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Silk, lustrous, fine, smooth silk. Who cannot but be enchanted by that luminous, shimmering silken cloudiness? Chinese legend suggests that around 3000 BC, the Yellow Emperor's wife, Empress Xi Ling, was drinking tea sitting under the cooling shade of a mulberry tree when kaplunk a hard cream-coloured cocoon fell into her cup of hot liquid trying to scoop it out Jiling instead extracted length upon length of unbroken silk fibre as the cocoon slowly dissolved in the steaming brew she cast this lustrous treasure over her garden creating a shimmering silken mist Empress Xi Ling is credited with introducing sericulture to China, as well as inventing a loom upon which the silk could be woven. She's sometimes referred to as the goddess of silk. And there's something about these Chinese legends that just inspire exotic imaginings for me. So where does silk come from exactly? Well, the quick answer is the silk moth, mainly the Bombyx mori moth, although there are others as well. There are four stages of evolution, beginning with an egg that turns into a caterpillar, which then pupates into a chrysalis before finally emerging as a moth. And those little caterpillars are greedy eaters, chomping through vast quantities of mulberry leaves to power their incredible transformation, multiplying their weight an, esti an estimated 10,000 times from hatching to spinning their cocoons. A silkworm ready to pupate can take up to three days to build a cocoon, excreting uh, silk from spinnerets just below its mouth. Each inch-long silkworm can produce a continuous silken thread up to 1,000 metres in length. To produce a single kilo of silk requires 220 kilos of mulberry leaves day in, day out for those voracious little feeders. Now that's a lot of greenery. They're prone to disease, but silkworms will, if properly cared for and fed, 
produce a good crop of cocoons, which can be harvested for their silk, keeping some back for breeding for the next crop of silkworms. Cassia Sinclair, in her book The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History, states, The first step of this process is to remove the outer layer of floss, which has a low tensile strength and can be used to pad out winter clothes. The cocoons are then steamed, baked or soaked in a saline solution, killing the chrysalis and preventing it from damaging its own silken sarcophagus when it emerges as a moth. I know it's sad, but it's true, and unfortunately by the time this is done, the silk weight has decreased 20-30%. The dripping filaments are reeled to straighten and prevent tangling, then twisted together, making a thicker thread suitable for weaving before being dyed. Mark Cartwright's article, Silk in Antiquity, published in 2017, notes that silk could be dyed and painted using minerals and natural materials such as cinnabar, red ochre, powdered silver, powdered clamshells and indico, and other inks extracted from vegetable matter. Sericulture is the rearing of silkworms for the production of silk. And remarkably, China is the only country with this long association with silk, going back thousands of years. Traces of silk proteins were discovered in a tomb, uh, dating from 8,500 years ago, although the fabric had long since degraded. A Neolithic site in southern China, dating from 2200 to 1700 BC, relinquished a cocoon that had been ever so neatly sliced in half. Then there's an ivory basin dating back approximately 4,900 years found at another Neolithic site, decorated with what appears to be silkworms. Art imitates life. I couldn't talk about silk without mentioning the Silk Road that mysterious series of trade routes connecting empires and exchanging not only trade goods, but also ideas, technology, religions and customs, as well as, quite sadly, disease. Creating silk remained a tightly held secret in China until around the 6th century CE. In fact, the ancient Greek word Ceres meant land of silk. Silk equaled power. It delineated class and was used in China to negotiate peaceful relations with warring tribes. Myth suggests it was the Silk Princess who took the secrets of silk production out of China when she hid silkworm eggs and mulberry tree seeds in her headdress as she crossed the border into Khotan when she went to marry the king. Silk in China was regarded as the bearer of good fortune, with numerous ancient inscriptions of the silkworm goddess going about riding in an ox-driven cart. The Book of Song of the Western Zoo period, 1100 to 770 BC, references poems and odes to silk, and according to Plutarch, Cleopatra wore a very fine silk tunic in bed, and so habited, threw herself at the feet of Augustus. Don't you just love that? (laughs) She was just trying to survive too. A young warrior come writer, Lu Qi, born in 261 AD and sadly executed aged 42 in 303 AD, wrote this in a little book about the art of writing. In a single metre of silk, 
the infinite universe exists. Such beautiful imagery in so few words. Nevertheless, silk had become so highly desirable a commodity that it was used as currency in Central Asia and it was the Silk Road trade networks that provided the means for silk to travel across Central Asia, then by nomadic traders farther west and south to spread across the empires of the ancient world. Marco Polo writes of Chinese silk, No day in a year passes there do not enter 1,000 cartloads of silk from which are made quantities of cloth of silk and gold. This so infatuated Christopher Columbus, he set sail for India, looking for not only silk, but also spice. The production of silk is ancient in India, with mulberry culture thought to have spread there from China through Khotan. However, ancient scriptures also allude to the fact that India had cultivated some form of wild silk independently of China. No one will ever really know. I'm just grateful for the input from these diverse cultures. Indian spinners and weavers could produce semi-transparent silks and muslins of extreme fineness, which were depicted in numbers of sculptures with these filmy fabrics much in demand in the Roman Empire. These words by Seneca the Younger shed a male Roman view of his time. He wrote, I can see clothes of silk if materials that do not hide the body, not even one's decency can be can be called clothes. Wretched flocks of maids labour so that the adulteress may be visible through her thin dress, so that her husband has no more acquaintance than any outsider or foreigner with his wife's body. Oops, someone's not happy. Anyway, back to India. In the beginning of the Christian era, uh, era Kashmir, uh, where mulberry trees were known as the wonders of Kashmir, became famous for its silk production with a number of references to be found in Western literature. Servius wrote in Virgil, Among the Indians are the Seras, the Chinese. There be on certain trees certain worms called bombasus that draw out very fine threads in the manner of a spider, and these threads constitute silk. The medieval period in India saw the silk trade flourish not only in Kashmir but also in Bengal, Mysore and other parts of India with exports of this rich merchandise by the Moors headed to European markets. By the year 550 AD, the Byzantine church and state had set up imperial silk workshops and by the 6th century, silk weaving had been established in Persia. But it wasn't until the late um, 1100s that the silk production um, became acknowledged in Europe when 2,000 silk weavers from Constantinople arrived in Italy to set up business. Mark Cartwright, again from the same article Silk in Antiquity published in 2017, states, Silk was not only used to make fine clothes, it was used for fans, wall hangings, banners and as a popular alternative to paper for writers and artists. Now I've trekked through a ton of information on this silken journey and I'm deluged with ideas for upcoming shows but out of pure selfishness I have to mention the Chinese dragon robes. 
those absolutely magnificent, seemingly simply constructed, richly patterned, woven robes worn by emperors, princes, along with some of the nobility and high and low ranking officials. Yet carefully and craftily designed within these robes was a complex code according rank and status, as well as employing ancient traditional symbology. I can't wait to start a journey on the dragon robe in a later episode. So what's made silk such a venerated and coveted fibre over the centuries? Well, it's all to do with quality and the appeal of luxury. Quality silk is soft, glossy and sumptuous. Its shimmering appearance is due to its triangular prism-like fibre structure where light is refracted at differing angles producing glimmering colours in a strong, non-elastic fibre. Apart from clothing and as a filling for luxury pillows and comforters, silk has also been used in women's stockings, surgical thread and, surprisingly, in artillery shells to hold the explosive. 1920s Shanghai saw the birth of another of the world's most elegant garments for women, quickly becoming a fashion phenomenon, adopted by movie stars and students alike, but also reflecting the rise of the modern Chinese woman. The Chong Sam, or Chipao, is uniquely Chinese, harking back to ancient Chinese dress for inspiration. It was originally made of body-hugging silk, featuring a high neck with standing mandarin collar, in a one-piece dress with a straight skirt and high split on one or both sides. It could be worn short, mid-length or long for evening and formal wear. Sally Gow's 2016 article, A Brief History of the Chong Sam, is well worth a read. Mulberry silk equates to 90% of silk production, but there are other types of silk. There's airy silk, whose caterpillars feed on the castor plant, Tussa silk, produced by a different larvae again, and mugger or wild silk from India. These silks differ in quality and usage, making them ideal for specific purposes, and as a result, we now have an abundance of silk fabrics to choose from, including charmeuse, chiffon, crepe de chine, dupion silk, georgette, habitai, organza, silk satin, shantung, silk craped back satin and velvet. What an amazing journey from a cup of tea legend to the growth of an entirely new industry called sericulture, the development of a trade via the silk road routes and to paying taxes and even wages in silk. (laughs) I really enjoyed my silk safari, but don't stop here. It's really a fibre worthy of further fascinating scrutiny. Thanks for taking the time to listen. It's great to have you here with me on these expeditions. In the next episode of the Stitch Safari podcast, it's time to kick off our shoes again for trek stop number two. So take a deep breath, relax and enjoy idioms, proverbs and truisms. And remember, precious are the memories that adorn our braided lives. Okay, bye for now. (laughs) 